0: Every tool will have different strengths and, and weaknesses. And it doesn't really make sense to try to only use one and think that you're getting everything out of it. Because inside of itself, there are different techniques that will maybe find different types of bugs or be able to prove different types of properties. And you should really use as many things as you can. And of course, if you have to install 10 different tools, you're not going to do it.
1: GMGM, GM, everyone. My name is the host of Scraping Bits. And today I'm with Leo Olds. How's it going, Fran? Hey, yeah, pretty good,
0: happy to be good.
1: Yeah, yeah, great to have you on. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on. I know you're incredibly busy, um, so very appreciative of this opportunity. Um, just for the people that don't know who you are, uh, I would love for you to give a short little intro of who are you and, and what do you do? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so hey everyone, my name is Leo.
0: I I'm currently the formal verification lead at the Ethereum Foundation, but also working on ZKVMs on Powder, and I've worked on the nice. solidity compiler before. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess that's the the things people will relate to.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, before joining, uh, you know, the Ethereum Foundation as you know the lead FB guy, I guess. How do you even get to a position like that? Where did you come from? And kind of progressed your career into where you are now, you know, working on, on ZK, co-founding that? Yeah. So
0: I did my PhD in SMT solving and formal verification at that point. It was not necessarily applied to Ethereum or smart contracts. I was I went into that field because it was interested both in the, in theoretical computer science, so complexity and these things and logic, but also in applying that stuff to to systems. And so not only staying theory, but also not only staying experimental. So this is a field that I felt like I had all the things that I that I wanted. And during my PhD, we were building um, tooling for um, software verification, software and hardware verification, but more focused on software. And then at the end of my PhD, pretty much, well, even before that, uh, me and friends were always into Bitcoin. And then I had a friend who was really into Ethereum. And then we got into smart contracts, started just writing smart contracts for fun. And then at the end of my PhD, I started trying to apply the knowledge we had on on software verification um, to smart contracts. And that's when um, Christian from the, uh, the Solidity Creator and back then the Solidity Team Lead invited me to, um, to go work with them.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, got you. Yeah. And so how did you kind of know Christian um, at all? If um, like I didn't. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I just
0: started writing tooling for smart contracts mm-hmm. and just publishing it on GitHub, talking to people online. I was uh, also yeah. often asking questions on the Solidity um, back then, Gitter channel on GitHub, and I started contributing to the compiler as well. So that's mm, basically cool. how we got to know each other and then had a conversation and um, and then I joined after that.
1: Open source tooling, you know, powerful things like, you know, FE, fuzzles, et cetera, etc. Um, you know, if they're super powerful, most people would just like close source them, right? So I guess it was early days and building tooling for such a, you know, ecosystem in its infancy, um, definitely would have sparked some interest within the, you know, that kind of community. So I, I guess open source is a really great way of getting people, getting recognition, right? Um, yeah, for sure. yeah. You're providing value in that sense. And then obviously people take notice and try and contact you. And then give you opportunities so i wonder why you chose formal verification over something like fuzzing uh for me it was just natural
0: because that was just what i studied and what i was familiar with in our academic group at university we were very focused on formal methods so we had our own sm2 solver and we had more of that kind of tooling and rest i think fuzzing and automatic testing these kind of things they sometimes people do all of these inside a formal methods group but I think they are more common in like a software engineering department or research group. And so it just happened that in my group, we were also a small team. So we were very focused on this one thing we were doing. And of course, I was familiar with fuzzing and I knew people working on fuzzing, but it was just, um, I just ended up doing FB inside.
1: Just for some context, what, what specifically is an SMT solver? So an SMT solver
0: is um, more generically, it's an automated theorem improver. Um, Theorem provers have existed for several decades now, and and it started when mathematicians wanted to prove things automatically. Um, So instead of you have a theorem, instead of trying to prove it by hand, you would apply mechanical steps and try to come up with the proof that Ethereum is correct for all cases, Mm -hmm. or um, find a bug in the proof, basically, Um, finding a rule that actually doesn't really apply. And of course, this this, um, started a long time ago, and... Um, if you think about systems like cock or Isabel or lean, these are more classic theorem provers, but um, they're not necessarily complete, completely automated and they require some human, um, assistance. So these are called assisted theorem provers and SMT solvers came, or maybe like a generation after that, or a generation and a half after that, mm-hmm. in which you have, um, you have a language called SMT lib, which you can use to express different theorems involving different data types or different operations. And then the SMT solver will try to prove this. Um, will try to prove the satisfiability of your statement automatically, fully automatically. And mm-hmm. proving satisfiability means um, you give a formula, a Boolean formula that has to be true or false, and it, it will tell you um, whether this formula is satisfiable or not. Meaning mm-hmm. satisfiable meaning there is a valuation of all the variables in this formula that, that make it true. And unsatisfiable, meaning this formula can never be um, satisfied, can never be true for any possible values that you plug in the variables here. And Mm -hmm. it turned out that SMT solvers were uh, very good for software verification because they are fully automated in the first place. And because the the way that you write theorems that this SMT solvers can understand is very similar to software. So Mm -hmm. the the sub-languages you would write are not like super complicated um, calculus and, and weird things. It's more just like, it's 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 very similar to programs. So you would say a statement using variables, using integer variables or real variables and making numerical statements about these variables or arrays, for example. So SMT solvers, they have uh, logics, which consists of theories and each theory gives you a certain sub language to play with. So, so for example, integers. Um, so you have a theory where you can have integer um, variables and integer operations and then you have a different theory in which you have arrays and yep. arrays are parametric that you can use any type as the index type or the value type of the array and you also have array operations so you can select an element from an index you can store a value into an index and you get another array out of that um, so these sub-languages that were built with just two solvers were kind of very natural for program verification mm-hmm. um, plus a lot of practical advances in first sat solving um, which is just boolean formulas. There's no theory element right, um, in right. solvers, and True then SAT solvers. The the practical advances that these solvers made in like the 90s and 2000s, and yeah, the last 15 years made them very practical for for self verification.
1: Yeah, it's more like a I guess mathematical way of proving something right instead of just kind of throwing random inputs and seeing what happens after. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So the way you would model a program usually when you're using an SMT solver is so that you encode the program yeah. using this mathematical language that SMT solvers provide. Then you need a property. So when you're formally verifying something, you need a property that you want yeah, to yeah. either break or prove that it's safe. And this is not yeah. this property is not only relevant for formal verification, but for anything, right? For fuzzing as well, for like yeah, yeah. foundry calls, and variant testing, or also HVM. And yes. it's just a property that you want to know or that you want to test, right? Yeah. And for FE, this means it's, it's a pretty extreme interpretation for FV, in which you're either trying to prove that this property is correct for any possible input, even without actually testing all inputs, or if you can't prove it, it's going to try to give you a counterexample to that property, which is effectively a, a bug usually, right? It's something mm. that, that breaks your, your property. And the way that you will, again, use SNS silver is by encoding the program. And then you take this property and you encode the negation of the property. And then you ask the solver, is this possible? Is this satisfiable? And the semantics of that are so that if the solver tells you this is unsatisfiable, it means that it's impossible for the negation of the condition you're trying to prove to be true. So it's impossible for the property to be wrong therefore the property must be right. And if the solver tells you it is satisfiable, it's gonna give you what's called the model, which is the valuation for each variable in the formula that make it true. Meaning here is a way to break the property, to make the negation of the property be true and effectively showing you how to, how to basically um, break the property and basically giving you a bug, right? So this is the, the very basics of how an SMT solver is usually used. For this type of analysis, but then of course there's a lot of different ways people can uh, vary this technique and try out different things.
1: Right. Yeah. So the SMT solver was really used for just making sure that the code was meant to do what it was meant to do. Right. It wasn't really looking for security vulnerabilities, as in like re reentrancy, for example. You can use it for that too.
0: Um, there are different sub techniques inside FV that will be more efficient to either case, but there are techniques that will be more efficient when you're actually trying to break something. It's not going to help as much in proving that it's correct, but if it is broken, it's more likely to find the flaw than some other technique that is supposed to prove correctness of the property.
1: Okay. But for, you know, Solidity, it was mostly just used for like non-security issues, right? Yeah. It's still the case that FV, usually
0: you're you're trying to prove correctness and... Yeah. you can use FV, you can tweak it in a way that you're at the same time trying to find bugs, right? And it is true that what we see a lot in practice is that a lot of the bugs are actually found by the techniques, right? So fuzzing, for example, is a very successful technique um, in yeah. finding bugs because of the nature of the technique. And whereas FV, it's it's designed to prove correctness. And then you, I, I don't want to call it a side effect, but it is like a, a It is kind of a side effect that that you can also find bugs with it. The the tools, they are all written with that in mind, that you will get bugs. You will get kind of examples for these properties and get bugs. But it is true that it's harder to do it with FV than Mm. uh, than other, other techniques. But it's also the case that Many times, some bugs will—they might only be found by a fee, similar to how some bugs may only be found by fuzzing. So yeah. these these tools are quite complementary.
1: Coming from a you know fuzzing point of view, if you were to just just try and find you know every possible bug, you would just brute force it, right? You know, every every possibility, yeah. You know every single context instance, and you'll eventually find something. If you know, given a long enough time frame, or if it's smart enough um, to kind of minimize the time the time complexity issue um but yeah if you if you complement them then you're really hitting everything but then that begs the question if you've never done it how would you really get into it formal verification without going to let's say university
0: Um, yeah i think it's a field that it's still mostly academic the way people get into it but i think especially on ethereum there's a lot of people without that background that that know about it which is pretty amazing to be honest and i think Mm. especially because the academic from verification community also gained a lot by Ethereum because it's probably the first software community where FV is really applied. Um, mm. We have been trying to do this. I mean, FV has been applied in different ways, so like especially hardware, um, especially like the the, the medical devices devices and avionics industry. They do apply these things for like decades already. Um, but in the software community, software was always too complicated um, to use rules. Mm in like a day-to-day basis. And in Ethereum, it's exploded because there are a set of incentives that make FV very um, doable for Ethereum. So for once the, the programs are small by nature, right? So the smart contracts are usually simple and they're small, both because for a practical reason on Ethereum, you have the, the bytecode size limit, right? And mm-hmm. you also have gas itself, which gives an incentive for things to be small and simple. Um, the second thing is obviously the financial incentive for things to be found early, and or for things to be hacked, and also the the, ask, the immutability aspect, right? Of course, people can upgrade contracts and do different things, but by nature, it's also immutable. So these three things together make FV very um, attractive for Ethereum, and we when we see it in in, in the FV boom we've had in Ethereum the last years with several tools, several companies doing these things, and also from an education point of view, where well, you were Solidity developers that had never had any background in formal verification, they know about FV. Um, they, maybe they, they already used it via HVM, for example, or um, now Helmos or SMT Checker or Manticore or Mithril. A lot of these tools they apply FV methods and people may have used them before. And I think Ethereum basically has this, this point of connection that is not an unexpected, but definitely um, surprising for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I imagine it'd be really hard to get into if you don't really have the, the academic background of you know math, for example. Like me trying to get into AI, I realize there's so much math involved and it's kind of a hindrance if I want to you know get into designing models, for example. So, I mean, it's a critical role in FE, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think math. there's also a difference though in like if you're writing the FE tools
0: or if you're just using them. If you're like... Of course, to write these tools, you will need some background, potentially yeah. SMT solving or um, assistive theory improvers, those kind of things. But if you're using the tools, a lot of teams, including ours, um, are working on making like the acts the, the or like, the UX of these tools the best as possible so that yeah. when you use these tools, you don't have to know anything about the background. You don't have to know, like, basically making the, for exactly. example, making the API the same as fuzzing, right? You're like, yeah. Here's a property. Just try to break it or prove it correct. I don't want to know what's happening in the background, and that's what a lot of tools have have focused on in the past years.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think you know, tooling right now in Ethereum is very convoluted, and it's very hard to get up and running without you know doing a lot of research into it. Um, the dev experience, and at least in my experience, hasn't been the best, so I've just never really used them. Um, but obviously, if you just make it very streamlined you just for example provide a property and then a contract and then it just does it That would be just you know the best right there's no learning of you know how do i set this up or what do i need all these dependencies it's just you grab it put it in run it and then there you go um Yeah, yeah for sure and
0: then one thing we've seen um especially last year and this year is um, so adapt tools and HVM, they kind of started this um, like FE yeah. integration into the development, right? And, and with HVM back then, I with right, adapt tools, you could write invariant testing, you could do fuzzing, you could do symbolic execution, right? And mm-hmm. Foundry went in a similar path, at least with, with fuzzing and the invariant testing, right? Which you can do with Foundry itself. And yeah. a lot of the symbolic execution tools and FE tools in general, they are providing Foundry integration, right? So if you take MathMP um, checker, it can be used directly by Foundry. Um, HEVM has found integration. Helmos has found integration. Um, KEVM has a mode with found integration. I think Sertora is working on found integration. So a lot of these tools, they noticed that the best way is to, oh, sorry about that. The best yeah. way is to basically take what people already use, which is things like Hard Hat, Foundry, and so on, and integrate the FE tools inside this, this development. Um, toolkits, and that's what provides the best UX to everyone, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, because it's such like a, a big east ecosystem. Everybody already uses, you know, for example, Foundry and Hardhat. Obviously, Foundry has gained you know tons of traction. It's kind of the standard now. So, if you want to have a tool that everybody uses, you would obviously use integrate with the tool that everybody uses. Yeah, because <laughs> you know? if, if you if you ask someone,
0: yeah go here, and install HVM, and install Syntheshack, and install Holmos, install sertor Prover, install KVM, install everything. They're like, no one's going to do this. And, yeah. and it's one thing we usually tell people. They ask, oh, what's the best FB tool? What should I use? And you should use everything. Um, mm-hmm. Every tool will have different strengths and, and weaknesses. And yeah. it doesn't really make sense to try to only use one and think that you're getting everything out of it. Because inside these itself, there are different techniques that will maybe find different types of bugs or be able to prove different types of properties. And you should really use as many things as you can. And of course, if you have to install 10 different tools, you're not gonna do it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the installing everything is definitely something you don't wanna do. You kind of just want like an aggregated source where you can just access them all at once. Because you know it's it becomes this time kind of trade-off with the person that's using is like, oh, okay, do I really want to use this? Especially if they're, for example, like a startup, right? They want to work on their startup and get to MVP and start releasing. They want to spend, you know, all these hours trying to learn how to, you know, install something. Maybe an error comes up, they can't find the answer. It just becomes this very convoluted thing. Um, But, you know, that, that begs the question of, you know, when someone wants to build an SMT solver? How should I really go about the design phase and then implementation? So
0: I feel like you wouldn't go about writing an SMT solver. Um, this is usually not something that a lot of people are doing. Even like people that are writing tools for smart contract for verification, for example, no one yeah. is really writing their solver. So these solvers, they're usually written by, they're like even a lower level in the in the stack. Um, we are using these mm. these tools that usually come from academic groups mm. there are lots of this SMT solvers out there there are two main ones that almost everyone uses called z3 from Microsoft Research and cvc5 from Stanford University mm. MBI, okay. and a few others so these tools are they are like maintained and developed by these uh, mostly academic or research mm. teams and we that the people that build FV tools for smart contract doing symbolic execution or Symbolic fuzzing or different things, we basically use um, these these solvers. Yeah, we yeah. we wouldn't really write a solver ourselves. That's, that's a lot of work.
1: It's just too yeah yeah. It makes sense. May as well use the the standards unless you have you know abundance of time to create your own. What led you to stop working at you know Ethereum Foundation as like lead formal verification? Stop doing that and then moving on to, you know, a different kind of path.
0: Yeah, so I've, I've been interested in the ZK space for several years now. I, I was always trying to write circuits and learn about how these things work. And mm-hmm. um, actually, one and a half years ago, almost two years ago, we actually started a project for doing FV for ZK circuits. So basically, trying to write techniques based on SMT solvers or using SMT solvers or SMT service plus something else, um, such as like Grubner bases, more algebraic approaches, um, applying these things to ZK circuits because these things were becoming really popular. And yeah, we, we wanted to bring the same type of techniques we have already in software with smart contracts to this space as well. And so this is something we were actually focusing on inside our FE team in the, in the EF uh, itself. Mm-hmm. And so we were always close to, to the ZK space in a way more from yeah. this like FV and security point of view, but at the same time, also having a compiler background. So about two years ago, I think, is when me and a few other people started digging a lot into ZK EVMs, pretty much, just like understanding how would you go about writing, uh, making, making ZK proofs about EVM execution. So we're just learning a lot about these things and becoming familiar with the project that we're doing this like two or three years ago, even though back then it sounded like it would still take a long time. So basically, yeah, studying these techniques, trying to design new techniques of how to, to make to make this happen. And yeah, and basically, I always, especially last year, I was trying to, to do different things, to experiment with different proof systems, for example, because we hear a lot about like different proof systems. So you have Starts, E-Starts, Halo 2, Nova, Supernova, the whole thing. And yeah. I wanted to experiment with all of them And this was, it was basically an impossible thing to do. It still kind of is, so this is, and this is a problem that, um, yeah, Christian and, and who started powder with me, um, also experienced. And we basically decided to, to jump on it, write some tooling. And then we had some really good preliminary results and eventually decided to just like jump on it um, full-time and, and work Mm -hmm. on this as, as our main thing.
1: Now you're applying all your skills from ethereum to now zk i guess what is your kind of end goal for for powder
0: yeah so currently we have so the idea and in, in powder the tool itself is to be a compiler middleware for many front ends many back ends so this right. is of course how compilers already work um outside ethereum or like outside blockchain outside the zk space right so you have things like all which accept many front-end languages in with via vm ir and then you have a single compiler pipeline through LVM, which then um, can also give you binary or assembly in different, in different targets. So like X86 yeah. or RM or RISC-V, et cetera. So the idea of Powder is, is basically uh, very similar where we want to be able to use any front end language through the same compiler middleware into many, um, any possible backend. Um, the ends being the proof systems, right? and Mm -hmm. so basically being able to make proofs in different proof systems or even combine them the recursion application kind of things and the way we do this is by um, writing a new language so the powder ir basically is um, an assembly language that that allows the users or also ourselves to write vms in powder so we can basically write any vm in powder itself and then with a single with a simple transpiler from whatever front end assembly into powder IR, we basically can benefit from the entire uh, workflow and the entire pipeline of the compiler, including static analysis, security passes, optimizations, all those kinds of things. And at the same time, have access to a whole uh, set of proof systems and aggregation.
1: Yeah, that seems like a lot of work as well though. <laughs> so I, I guess, you know, how do you build all this stuff like a, like an IR that's that's actually quite good? Um, how do you make that effective as well? Because, you know, people use IRs and security techniques as well, like fuzzing and all that stuff to make it more simple and understand it. So even compilers will be the same of, you know, checking for, you know, any, I guess, mishaps in the code. Um, but yeah, I guess, how do you really go about building this entire stack? Um, what's the process of it? Obviously it's gigantic, so there's got to be some kind of structure, um, but yeah, how do you really design this whole architecture?
0: Yeah, it's actually not that big. It's really like it's, it's all in 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 the abstractions. So all you want to do is just like keep it layered and compiler passes. So you have several layers, several um, levels in the stack, and you just keep converting one to the next. And it's not like you need to have this one massive program that does everything. the The key point is being very modular. Um, so for mm. example, we have the, the IR language, right, which in, in which you can define VMs. And with this language, we can write, we wrote the RISC-V um, implementation, uh, basically how RISC-V works. And like the, instru- the instruction set basically in powder IR. We also wrote um, Valida VM, and we're soon gonna write like WASM as well and EVM. And right, so oh, nice. this is written in the language as well.
1: Yeah.
0: And from that, um, we do several transformation passes into different and flavors of the assembly itself, and then doing some different passes, optimizations, and so on. And then finally, we arrive at a low level constraint language, which doesn't have the notion of programs anymore. It only knows about constraints. At mm. this point, we do a few more passes of optimizations and analysis and so on. And from this, it gets transformed into the shape that each proof uh, proof backend wants. Mm. So this, this final part is actually pretty simple because mm. We are already at a language which is just constraints, and the provers also take constraints. So it's more just like it's a it's a like single file API where we just transform our data structures into the prover data structures. Um, so this part is actually one of the one of the simplest. Um, and yeah, a lot of work actually goes into design of the language. So we had several designs, several iterations on on the the, the VM language basically, and we just keep yeah. changing it. And our idea is yeah. to be very um, iteration um, based. So we just write an iteration and we're never really ha- 100% happy with that iteration, but we go for it anyway. We change our tests, we change our code and then we start writing new things and then learn what we have to change next and keep changing these things. And one approach we have followed since the beginning is to focus on an end-to-end approach where even if the middle, even if not all modules in the middle are finished, we want to be able to Follow an end-to-end path fully, and at least attempt things. So that's why we decided on one front end, we decided on one back end, and then we said, okay, let's make this one path work, which was basically the risk five to actually two paths: uh, risk five to halo two and risk five to starts. And we made the front end work, we made the back end work, we made the middleware really basic, so that we can already make proofs for Rust programs, for example, or any program that compiles to risk five or a valid VM. Now we have as well. So Now the middle is not finished, so the core of the compiler is not finished, but it has the bare features needed to go all the way from a Rust program to a Halo 2 proof, for example. Mm -hmm. And then this enables us to basically keep working in a way that's very feature or like use use case based. So we have a certain program we want to make proofs for. We just try it because the parser works, the compiler works, the prover works. Mm -hmm. Then we figure out, okay, so there's such a there's a certain feature missing inside the compiler which is going and build that feature and because every everything's very modular it's possible for us to follow this approach and then just build out each feature separately until mm-hmm. a certain use case we really want to work actually works and yeah i think this is basically the key to your first question how do we go about building what sounds like a, a massive project it's it's really based on this I would even say classic compiler architecture of layers, levels, and, and and modularity.
1: I think that even applies to anything or any kind of project, start, oh, yeah, sure. et cetera. It's, it's, oh, sorry? Yeah, I was just agreeing with you. Sure. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that goes with anything, really. It's, it's just you've got to modulize, otherwise you're never going to get to the end or at least the start of the journey. Um, you'll always be trying to add all the features at the start and never actually reach the point where you can start iterating on it because you you haven't got the initial product right um and you know, given given that you need to get to this mvp state i guess how do you determine what is absolutely essential to include um and then how do you attack each kind of section of okay we need this first to make this other thing happen and then we can finally use that last thing to get to mvp um so yeah how do you decide on priorities and you know not trying to include every single feature um at the, at the first stage
0: yeah so we basically decided we're not focusing on performance at the moment um okay. this is something we is going to come later but it's not the main thing for now so for now we want to focus on developer experience and the usability aspects of going all the way from a from a high level program or from writing your own vm to proof system so currently we have a few fronts going on so we have the front end um, which again supports things like RISC-V programs and VALIDA programs and soon EVM, WASM, and so on. So a big part of the work is making sure that these front ends are fully supported. And this is basically demand, right? So we know people want to make proof robust right. programs. What's the easiest way to make proof robust programs? Either RISC-V or validator, And but right. we also know people want WASM programs and they also want EVM because Yeah, everyone still wants again. So I feel like these are the the main front ends we have. And then inside each front end, we know what to do. And then it's kind of like, quote, unquote, just work. On the other extreme, we have the proof systems. And the main production proof systems we have nowadays are Halo 2 and Starks, right? These are the ones used by pretty much, I guess, all or almost all L2s, L3s, and so on. And so we focus on these two. So we have now Halo 2 integration um, almost fully done. And then we're also working on the Starks integration. And, um, we also know people need to, they want to verify proof in Ethereum. So if you're in the Starkland, land, you also need to have some recursion aggregation set up to end up with the snark that you can go and verify in Ethereum. So it's, it's again, based on use case and then user demand pretty much. And, mm. and then the internals of the compiler is then what are the, what's the minimal set of features that we need to write that's going to enable this whole thing to link to link together. Right um how do we actually take all the front ends we want and link them to the front, to the back ends we want um so yeah. that's basically how the feature set is, is decided
1: and you also mentioned like language design as well right i do want to touch on how do you actually know when a language is good and you know obviously you've had experience with you know solidity that compiler um what are the things you've kind of learned from from solidity and you you're kind of improving on um with powder
0: Yeah, I think uh, there are quite a lot of lessons from Solidity. I think one big lesson is to keep it simple, which sounds very simple, but, and again, it's a general software um, engineering concept, right, to not try to make things too complicated if you don't have to. And I think this is one really positive point of Solidity. It's, It's a DSL. It's made for Ethereum. It does its job. You can very easily read Solidity. You can, If if you code in any Web2 or systems programming language, you can learn Solidity in two days and Hmm. start writing even slightly complicated things. Of course, you have to study the EVM as well, because if you don't know the EVM, then yeah, you're you're gonna do weird stuff in Solidity. But I think Solidity does a really good job at being simple and effective at that and really easy to read and, and write. One of the negative things that I would say we've also learned from Solidity is to try to keep things out of the language, um, sorry, out of the compiler and written in the language. So one thing, this is one thing that like Rust does really well, for example. Um, A lot of the things are written in the language itself. So tons of the libraries of many different things are written in Rust itself. And the compiler only needs one specific module or type checker type of module to support a whole set of different features because it allows these things to be written in the language and in solidity there's a lot of magic things that the compiler has to support because these are things that are first-class citizens in the language and i think reducing the set of first-class citizens in languages also is also something we try to apply in in the powder ir as well of course sometimes it just it's it's hard to keep this this principle Hundred percent for practical reasons, but I would say this is like one big positive one. Um, yeah, big negative that we that we, we keep in mind.
1: Since Power is a startup, um, luckily you've found some co-founders. But um, you know, what are the what are the real difficulties you're facing um, as a startup? I, obviously, you're juggling multiple hats, um, but you know, starting up is not easy. Um, so how are you kind of going through this process after, you know, going with solidity and I'm sure you've done previous startups. Um, but yeah, I guess, what are, what have you learned in the past that you're now applying now and what are you learning while building this right now?
0: Yeah. I think especially in the ZK
1: space, it's,
0: it feels a bit hard sometimes to stay focused because yeah. there's so many new so things, things right? going on and yeah, Every single week, there is a different proof system or use case, or I don't know, mm. some crazy tool. It's, it's really hard not to get nerd sniped constantly and mm-hmm. go build different things just for fun. We're still doing this for fun. So we, we enjoy what we're doing and we think it's valuable. Yep. There's fun things everywhere to be done. And I would say this is, this is tough. Just like deciding on the roadmap and really sticking to it and not mm-hmm. letting yourself be distracted by. Either in a new shiny thing that you've seen, or um, different use cases, which we do learn about use cases all the time. Um, mm. I would
1: say this is—it's hard not to get distracted. I definitely resonate with that. Building my, my fuzzer, I also talk to like AI engineers, and then I get extreme fomo of uh, of AI and feel like what I'm doing now is pointless. Um, but you know, after going doing it for so long, it's like why would I stop right at the end? May as well get to the finish line. But, you know, getting to the finish line is the very, it's the hardest thing. Uh, the finish line, meaning, you know, MVP, at least. right? Because, um, you know, the hardest thing really is getting to the MVP. There's so many distractions, so many things that can go wrong. Uh, and even if you get to the MVP, right, it, you know, people might not even want to use it. Yep. <laughs> like maybe you've just built out a ton of features, that nobody really uses or you know maybe use one out of ten for example and it's just like oh wow why did I just spend all my time doing this um, so I, I guess on that note how do you know without let's say you didn't have a community behind it already um, you don't already know kind of what's you know what's necessary and what's not how do you identify you know what people want um, without I guess even having the people to begin with I, I guess it starts from... A problem that you've had, or something you identify, and then you go through that. But then, even then, you don't know if people would also also have that problem. Um, so I guess where that where does that mindset really come from?
0: Yeah, I think you're right. At first, it was basically a problem we had, and we were trying to we we're trying to solve. But also at the same time, we we have we know a lot of people. We have friends working on. Um, different levels of the stack. So on, on okay. proof systems and cryptography, on L2s, L3s, and L1 itself. And so I think we've we've also identified from this larger community um, the needs of different things and mm-hmm. also just talking to people in general, um, especially we were in Paris with CC a few, few weeks ago and I've heard of use cases that I have not imagined before and that could potentially use powder as well, for, for example, and I think just... just just always learning about different projects, different tools, different ideas, and besides the, the ones that we um, already kind of knew before.
1: With a um, formal verification, just to like jump a bit back, what are your thoughts on like the AI future of, I guess, FB and you know cybersecurity in that sense? Because um, you know it, it is quite intimidating of the possibilities of what the future can be with AI. And that can obviously bring in some imposter syndrome of, oh, what I'm doing right now is redundant AI will eventually take it. But I, I guess, do you think about that at all of this huge AI revolution and <laughs> it taking over software?
0: Yeah, I think on the security side in general, I think it would be really cool to see more AI powered tools. Yep. I think there are definitely some up there already both in like helping you construct the code right but also analyzing code i think a lot of people are extremely skeptical saying like oh there's no way ai can do what what our current tools do and, and yeah that's probably true right now but uh, maybe one day we're going to be at a point where the ai is actually pretty good at like very quickly identifying vulnerabilities and this type of things the one issue that is that's it's also true for like the current ai already just like the the how confident you can be on whatever the AI says. Mm. And this is particularly a problem if in the security space, right? If the AI tells you, oh, yeah, this thing is safe. And then it's like, yeah, okay, but why? And how did you find it out? And right. I think getting explanations out of AI is still a big research field. And I'm not, I don't, I, I'm, again, I don't know that much about AI, so... Mm-hmm. I don't know how, how advanced this, this field is, but I know that it's a field people work on. So getting like explanations out of AI decisions and, and plots. Mm-hmm. So I think this is something that has to be figured out before people really trust AI results for security. Um, of course, for the positive case, in the sense of like the positive being a bug is found, the AI, if the AI gives you a bug, then of course you can just test it, right? So I think especially in this case, might be very, very valuable um, in the near future. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I think it's always great to hedge. um, Well, not hedge, but always try and learn a bit about, you know, new technology, you know, including ZK, AI, whatever. Because, I mean, I think in the long run, it's, it's about the things you regret that you want to, well, you know, if you want to start something, think about the future. Will I regret not learning this now or down the road? Um, obviously, there's a lot of trade-offs <laughs> in opportunity costs. Um, you know, you might be focusing on startup and you don't really want to learn something part-time, but it might be useful, right? Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, it all comes down to time management, priority management, all that stuff, including, you know, whether you're focused or not. So I guess, you know, to achieve such great things... Um, what do you really de- take? Uh, how do you really structure your day so you can focus, you know, a hundred percent at times and really structure your day where you can be most optimal,
0: I think still in the AI thing, I was actually, I, I really do not know much about AI and I feel like I'm not the best person to get into AI, but I'm, I like to use it. So I do use GPT-4 daily to help me out with things. I feel like it's not very good at code yet. But I I use it just to, like, chat about ideas and ask yep, for yep. information, like a Power Google, kind of. I, I feel like it got more productive when I since started doing this. I feel like a lot of people did that already. So it's not, nothing magic, but I think for me, it, it works. <laughs> In general, I think being productive, let's see, fewer meetings, definitely. Oh, yeah. I, I have a self-policy right now of, like, Monday and Fridays, no meetings. And... Mm-hmm. Like, of course, you can always have spontaneous meetings with the team and then discuss. We have ad hoc technical calls all the time, mm-hmm. but just like no planned meeting. So like you can start and end the week and like in a focus way. Yep. I think focus time, like the chat closed is also a good idea. Um, mm-hmm. But also on the other way around, just like being, being communicative and then just like pair programming, these kind of things are super I find it super productive to just work together with people on, on a feature or fixing bugs, reviewing pull requests, these kind of things.
1: Yeah, I agree. The pair programming thing is very mm-hmm. useful. I, I haven't done it too much, but the times I have done it, you can really kind of like hone down and focus. Uh, it's like a, an environment you're in, right? So I don't know, you, since you're talking to someone and discussing ideas, it's kind of hard to get distracted in that sense. Um, whereas if you're alone, you have your phone, for example, even if you have your phone in the pair programming, it's still not going to get as distracted as if you're alone and you, you have yeah, your phone. Right. Sure. Um, and even just like managing social media as well, it's, it's such a, a, a massive thing. Right. And it's, it's grabbing all your attention or at least attempting to, and you've got to find these, uh, these windows within your day of, uh, focus. Right. And that takes, you know, maybe 20 minutes to get into that kind of state. And it's so easy to break it. Um, so, how do you really limit distractions? Because uh, obviously, you can you can work hard, but to get into the state of working hard and you know being in a flow state is the, the most difficult thing. I I think, or well, at least that's for me. So, I wonder what your kind of strategy is to limit limitation, uh, limit these distractions, and really zone in to the task at hand. Yeah, I think when I really want to get
0: something done, it's it. I, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of natural. Um, if I'm really into a feature and then I just really want to finish it or fix a bug or something then I feel like that itself is the thing that's nerd sniping me to do right now. Just like get nerd sniped by my own features.
1: I think <laughs> it's the, the usual mindset. For me, I, I have the features, I have the same kind of feeling with some features but then others are just extremely hard to implement. And then, then I get kind of like demotivated in some way. Do you yeah. ever feel that kind of way?
0: Yeah, for sure, especially on the Synthi-Checker for Solidity. For a long time, I was working on it alone. I had people like to discuss ideas and review pull requests and kind of things, but I was, I was responsible for the for most of the implementation, and a lot of the time the implementation was really complicated and I had to like study a lot and design things, and um, at some point, all I could think of was, like, I just want to not do any of the complicated features anymore. I just want someone else to do it, or I just want to be done with this. So I think, yeah, definitely can resonate with that. It's it's hard to always have to do the, the complicated stuff. This is for sure, um, true.
1: Yeah, it's pretty annoying that to move on to the features that you do want to do, you've got to do these very difficult ones which are massive roadblocks and you actually can't get around them because they are a necessity for these other features. Um, yeah, I think so a d- guess it,
0: good solution is to just have good teammates that can also do that kind of stuff and then you can always just order alternate and... Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. But for the people that, you know, are building tools by themselves, it, I guess, yeah, it's incredibly hard. for, for me, at least, you know, I'm building a a feature right now, which is a necessity for everything else, but you know, it's, it's very, it requires a lot of moving parts, which, you know, maybe is a, a flaw on my end for designing this in such a way, Mm -hmm. but I've also thought of different ways, but the overall kind of vision for it, it, it needs to be complex to some degree to even achieve it. Um, but again, it could be just that I'm limited in my knowledge of software, uh, but getting through these very difficult problems are extremely hard. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's definitely <laughs> tough. Yeah.
0: And working alone guess, itself, even even if you're doing small features, easy stuff, just like working by yourself is, is always um, tough.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess rewarding as well in in some ways, but um, you know, just to shift topic a little bit, you you know, you're working at Spearbit, um, well, as a as a freelancer, I assume, or a contractor, um, yeah. and yeah, you know, what what is a uh, how do you really go about the auditing methodology you take? How do you zone in to find critical vulnerabilities? Right, um, maybe there's a different strategy, but I guess what what is your kind of process
0: um yeah there's a few things that i personally or also the other people that i usually do these things with do i think one of them is really just like understanding what things are supposed to do so that's why projects with like great docs and this kind of things always like a more it's 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 a it makes makes your life easier um if you can read a document and say okay so understand what this thing's supposed to do and and obviously, if the code is well written, you can try to like match conceptually and say, okay, this is this gives me a good feeling or not. And this is also kind of like there's also this element of like vibes. You just look into the code and then it's like, okay, this okay. looks this looks weird. This looks a bit fishy, and all investigate a bit more. Of course, is like good practices, things people should be doing, things people should not be doing, and of course you hunt those down. Usually, more like in a in a, in a methodic way, right? Just see like, they have this checklist of things that want to check, right? And this is normal. I think everyone will have their own checklist of like bad practices, good practices, and I think everyone has their own checklist. Probably companies have their own checklist as well. And you do this kind of things and, but you also have this feeling of like when things are looking fishy or not, and then you kind of just like, you can do vertical or horizontal, right? You can just like find a fishy thing and try and hunt it down and go into the rabbit hole all the way until you're either convinced that it's fine or you find a problem mm-hmm. or you're like, yeah, convinced enough that it's fine okay. or you can basically just try to like take a shallow look into the whole code base and then just kind of like scan, feel, feel the different parts and I think it's always a combination of both, right? So it's mm-hmm. more just like you're always kind of like scanning and then you see like it just looks a little bit weird so you, you go a bit deeper and then you scan a little bit as well and then you either backtrack or keep going. Yeah, this is not very... What I just said doesn't feel very scientific, but yeah.
1: <laughs> Having done it manually, you obviously have a good sense of, you know, what goes into it. And, you know, when you do it manually, it's it's an algorithm in your head, right? Um, so I guess if you were to automate it, let's say in an abstract sense of very simple kind of things, like step by step, what would you do if you had to automate it? Um yeah, so what what kind of like step would you take to to build something that could automate your process or you know to a point where it can discover critical vulnerabilities in an efficient manner?
0: I think you mean automate the, the manual process, not like an FE tool. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think like visualization tools help, or like better visualization tools would help. Because I think sometimes projects have like really complicated paths inside their their whole project yeah. suite. Where you're like, okay, how do we even get to this function? Mm-hmm. Okay, this function looks kind of fishy, and the way it's using the the state variables, the storage variables, feels problematic. Or this, it could be double double spending ETH, um, mm-hmm. but for that, I need to verify and I need to check that this path is unique, or like that it can branch out in a certain point. So I think there's probably a lot of heuristics that tools like Slither, for example, probably employ. Also from their own um, their own learnings and audits. So I think those visualization tools would be probably something I would try to tackle if I was trying to automate this process. And I have used a few tools for this kind of stuff before. So, like, if I want to, I have a function that's really deep down in my contract. It's it's kind of far from from the entry point of the contract. Then how do I even get to this point? What are the, what are the functions that allow me to come here? Then it would just mm-hmm. like Put a broken assertion there, like assert false or something, and then run a few tools like HVM or Check Checker or others, and then see the kind example and see okay, this is how I get the dysfunction, which feels like overkill in a way. But I think I don't. know, This feels like yeah, one example that that just just came to mind.
1: Yeah, some more visualization tools, and I I wonder, what if you had to fully automate it? How how would you go about that then?
0: Well, fully automate then it would be a few tool. <laughs> <laughs> because if, if you're automating the manual process it's a lot of heuristics that yeah. you don't necessarily have mapped out in your head explicitly so i mean as you saw before I, I even have a problem explaining what i do manually because it's it feels very intuitive sometimes and you don't know why you're doing things of course again there is this this checklist and you're always You, of course, like with experience, you know, when things look fishy or not, but I think, yeah, automating the manual process, I just wouldn't know how to do it because what you're trying to do is basically, I think, yeah, the only way I can describe it is just like collecting heuristics and making detectors based on these heuristics. So again, tools like Slither, I feel like, yeah, tools like Slither are probably a good summary of things you usually check in the manual audit. And so... That's why I, I don't know how I would go about doing that. Besides doing what's what Slither already um, already does and fuzzing and these kind of things, so of course, like sometimes we do set up our own fuzzing um, based on on like whether we we want to prove equivalence of different reference implementations or these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but if yeah. to, if I had to build a tool to automate a whole security process, I would probably
1: build either a fuzzer or and tool. Gotcha, yeah. I mean, you know, building something that fully automates finding every, I guess, vulnerability is not an easy feat. As you said, it's a bunch of heuristics and ways of thinking which get complicated very quickly. And, you know, first of all, you have to build the reconnaissance tool to kind of get every all the information right. And then you got to start building. you got to account for all the different scenarios or what can happen, what things can change, what things, what can be influenced. And, you know, with smart contracts, it's a multidimensional kind of problem. It's not, you know, traditional fuzzing where you just change the payload. It's it's more of, you know, changing the payload. That's one. But then you also have cross-contract interaction. Yeah. Um, you know, there's different contexts of all this stuff as well. Like someone can throw in, you know, a 100 ETH to the contract. Then what happens to all these other paths I just took with this, with this hundred ETH. <laughs> so there's also like actor fuzzing as well. And then, you know, replicating all of the the past fuzzers with this new actor. Um, so there's that dimension as well. And then even you can say cross chain or multi chain, omnichain, whatever. Um, you know, maybe it depends on off chain stuff. How do you modify that? And then it becomes an even bigger kind of problem. Oh yeah, for sure. So in yeah, in my eyes, it can be done. It's just a very tedious thing um and you know that's where I think AI would really come in um because if you think about it any kind of fuzzer or anything is really just uh, a representation of your manual labor um to build the the, the tool to, first of all but you know it won't evolve unless you evolve it whereas an AI can evolve by itself and understand all these dimensions intuitively after you know tons of training i don't know it's a it's interesting field and i think it's definitely worth taking a look at um i do eventually want to get into like formal verification well not formal verification but uh i guess fuzzing on zk uh especially on like aztec that seems very interesting with like you know you have zk with the privacy transactions but then you also have like abstract um the abstract account abstraction so it's like a whole new kind of realm i think for people interested in evm ethereum kind of stuff having said that it it has reached you know one hour and i don't want to take too much more of your time i do want to thank you for jumping on for this this past hour and being able to connect with me and hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as i have um but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, for sure. This
0: was a great chat. Thanks for having me on.
1: Of course. And for anyone listening, if you want to be on the on the podcast or want to suggest anybody coming on the podcast, just DM me at Scraping Bits on Twitter. Um, otherwise, thank you so much, Leo, for, for jumping on. And I'll catch you on the next episode. For sure. Uh, yeah.